Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues the series of messages in the new year. In this sermon, we are told how the most loving thing we can do for others is to gently but persuasively share the good news of salvation in Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, Ambassadors of Christ. 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 is where we will be heading. So you might throw a pin uh, in that passage, 2 Corinthians 5. But if you would also open up to Matthew 28, we're going to read a little section there. So I'll give you guys a second to be turned in your Bibles there. Uh, discipleship groups are starting back up again this month after taking off for the holidays and such. If you're not currently involved in one, uh, this is one of the ministries we believe is pretty significant. Uh, so if you want to come talk with me about getting you plugged into one of those. So Matthew chapter 28, and let me take um, just a second here. Matthew 28, we're going to read verses 18 to 20 um, here in, in, in just a bit. Um, it's one of those passages you, you probably already know that this is the passage we oftentimes call the Great Commission, um, this mission that Jesus has sent us out into. And the Great Commission is one of those passages that we will keep reading till we die. We will keep seeing new things. It will keep re-energizing us um, as we keep looking at it. And another thing that happens here is that in two and a half verses... Jesus gives uh, in really quick fashion some summary of what we see, what takes up a whole lot of the New Testament. In other words, there are entire chapters of the New Testament. About three quarters of the book of Acts is just simply further explaining and modeling what Jesus says here in two and a half quick verses. So uh, please read along with me, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's actually a lot happening in those couple of verses, but one of the uh, summary ways we can simply say it is Jesus gives his people the call Go and make disciples. Now, part of the genius that we see in this passage is that uh, making disciples or helping someone become a follower of Christ, a disciple is somebody who has seen that Jesus is Lord, recognized their need to be made right with God, have forgiveness of sins, seen that Jesus is the answer, and they have turned, turned from trusting themselves and turned to trust in Christ, the process of us doing that, of helping others be disciples, has numerous steps. And what we're doing this week and then Lord willing into next Sunday is kind of looking at what some of those steps are. The first and most obvious step is the work of us believers who are following Christ of coming to those who are not yet following Christ and helping them become a follower of Christ. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And so to that end, please flip over to 2 Corinthians 5, which is the primary passage we'll be looking at today. So 2 Corinthians 5, pick up in verse 16. We'll read through 21 and then we still need to pray and ask for God's help. But look at verse 16 there. Therefore, from now on, 
we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, God, we ask that you will give us grace. Father, we know that what is happening in these moments that we come to your word, we collectively as a church family, corporately gathering, Father, we're taking part in something that is much, much bigger than what it looks like as just a simple group of people getting together to study your word. Lord, that we are taking part in the worship of the cosmos. We're taking part in what's happening in heaven right now. So Father, we ask that you give us grace. We ask, Lord, that we will worship you in a way that is pleasing to you, that everybody in this room, Lord, that we will receive your word in a way that is appropriate as being spoken from the living God. Father, help us to bow to you, submit to your word, understand the truths that you uh, have spoken to us here. Help me, Lord, in my work of teaching and explaining, and I pray that it'll be clear and not befuddled. Father, help us, Lord, to clearly see the call, the command, all these truths and principles, and Lord, that when, then we will be transformed to live in accordance with them. So, Father, we pray that you do a work. To the believers in the room, those currently following you, please give us grace to grow in Christ. Any in the room who's not following you, not yet turned, Father, we pray that you would bring clarity. You'd bring an awakening, oh God. But Father, everything that needs to happen for every soul gathered here, please give us the grace we need. Please send your Holy Spirit to shine light on your word. Father, we also pray for the little ones back in the next room. God, we pray miracles will be done there. Father, that the teachers explaining your word, explaining the message of the gospel would be effective and that these little ones would come to trust in Christ personally. Father, please bring about salvation of souls. Please give grace, O God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Charles Wesley was converted in... 1738, he's got his own story of conversion. Uh, he had acknowledged truths of the gospel for quite some time. If you'd walked up to him and asked him, you know, is Jesus Lord? Did he die for sins? That kind of thing. He would have said, yes, mentally he understood it. But he had not personally turned to Christ, had not personally bowed the knee until 1738. And something amazing happened just two months. So brand new believer, just two months after turning Christ, he did, he did something pretty noteworthy. He and a friend of his went to a prison 
and spent a week there engaging in some ministry, sharing the gospel, explaining the word of God, explaining the, the need for souls to turn to Christ for an entire week there at that prison. And then at the end of the week, there were a small group of the prisoners who were set to be executed on the following day. And Wesley and his friend went to the authorities there and actually asked for permission if they could be locked in the cell with these men on the night before their execution to kind of try to minister and talk with them through the night. They were granted permission. They were locked up there in that room and spent the night sharing the gospel with them spent the night walking through the scriptures to explain the need, urging these men to trust in Christ. The following day, the cart came to haul the men off and they were loaded up. Wesley again asked if he could ride in the cart with them to kind of see them all the way through. They arrived at the destination. The ropes began to be tied to the men's necks. And as this were happening and Wesley is witnessing all that takes place, he, he later wrote of thinking back of that moment. And he said this, speaking of the men, they were all cheerful, full of comfort, peace, assuredly persuaded that Christ had died for them and waited to receive them into paradise. Wesley had even kind of uh, developed a bit of a friendship with one of the men uh, throughout that night. And speaking of that particular man, he said that as often as his eyes met mine, this is as the rope is being tied and as things are getting ready, as often as his eyes met mine, he smiled with the most composed, delightful countenance I ever saw. We left them going to meet their Lord, ready for the bridegroom. When the cart drove off, so this is the moment that they actually hung, not one stirred or struggled for life, but meekly gave up their spirits. That hour under the gallows was the most blessed hour of my life. Now, did those men genuinely turn to Christ and have forgiveness of sins or was it just scared and covering some bases? Only God knows, but Wesley was convinced that they genuinely responded, genuinely turned to Christ. And either way, what Wesley modeled is that if, if souls really are eternal, like guys, if this isn't, if this really isn't a game, if souls really are eternal, if we all really are going to stand before the living God and give an account of our lives, and if the gospel is true, like if it's real, if it's really the case that we will stand before God, our sin deserves an eternity of wrath, but the gospel is true. Jesus died for sins. There's an opportunity to be made right with God. Then this is an absolute non-negotiable that we who know Christ and know the message spend our lives in the work of explaining this, of showing this, of seeking to persuade souls to turn to Christ. Now, we need to acknowledge here, maybe from the very beginning, 
that what we're talking about, the world likes to call it proselytizing, okay? Not the word that the Bible uses, but the the world often calls it proselytizing. It's fallen very out of vogue. You're considered very narrow-minded and bigoted. Uh, You're very arrogant if you seek to change someone's mind. Listen to me, that would only be a wicked, prideful kind of thing if the gospel isn't true. It would only be wicked if everybody's fine and nobody needs anything. But if what Jesus says is actually true, that every soul must be reconciled to God in order to have eternal life, then it is actually the most loving thing we can possibly do to try to show and explain that message and seek to persuade souls to turn to Christ. We are not able to force, and it doesn't work anyway, but to seek to persuade to show the truths of the gospel. And this is why we see scripture call us to this. Again and again in scripture, we are told as God's people that part of what it means to love and worship God is to seek to bring others to see his greatness and to come to have forgiveness of sins themselves. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the passages, one of the numerous passages in scripture that help us get a handle on this instruction, this calling that we've been given. So we want to study through it and want to do it. um, This morning, I want to kind of break it up into two parts here. Um, We're still in this uh, New Year's series of looking at some of the various ways we live for the glory of God. Uh, The making of disciples is one of the major ways we do that. So making of disciples of those that are not yet following Christ is this Sunday. Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll kind of follow up in what it means to help one another in our following of Christ so that we progress further in the full measure of what God wants for us. But this passage specifically is addressing the calling of the believer to help others turn to Christ. So the two sections we'll look at are, number one, if you're taking notes, we'll look at we as believers are ambassadors of Christ with a ministry and a word. And then secondly, we're just going to look at some application. How do we do this? Practically speaking, how do we put some of these things in place? So first, we are ambassadors of Christ with a ministry and a word. As you look through the passage, the central idea there, um, you can find in that phrase in verse 20, uh, we are ambassadors of Christ. We represent Christ and we've been given a message to tell. We've been given a work to do. So let me kind of show you how it's explained as we look through this here. In chapter five, earlier in the chapter, in some of the section that we didn't read together, if you were to look up starting in verse one and kind of glance at the context that goes down there, we've got a passage here that really focuses in on the eternal. What's happening here is is God, uh, this is one of those places that explains the brevity of life. Uh, We're told that our bodies are just a covering. Your body is just a tent. This body right here, the one that we spend so much attention on is eventually gonna decay, wear out, grow old, die. Your soul is eternal. There's gonna be new bodies in the kingdom to come, but in Christ, there's eternal life. If you look through the passage in verse eight, there'll come the day that we who are in Christ will be absent from the body but present with the Lord. When we think about life, when you just hear the word life, like what kinds of thoughts come into your mind? 
Scripture calls us to have this eternal focus. Okay, this is the biblical approach to life. If when we hear the word life, if we're always just thinking right now, this brief little time when everybody's running around building castles in the sand, just this brief little period, we're not thinking long enough. Scripture calls us that whenever we think about life, my life, we are to think in terms of eternity, which means that this first part, this temporary little season of this life is not the fulfillment. It's not the climax. It's not what all the goals and aims are for. We are going to live 10,000 years from now. You will still be around one way or another. And so scripture is giving this eternal kind of focus. It's calling us to think in these kinds of way. And so live for what matters, live for the real lives. All of this is taught. And then here's what happens in verses 16 to 21. We've got this eternal focus of the gospel. Now, here are ramifications of that. Here's application of that. If souls are eternal, truth, biblical truth, if souls are eternal, well, then we could say 50 things after that and other places in the Bible will. This passage, here's the application. The application here is souls are eternal. Now we need to see this. So kind of walk through the various verses here. I want to kind of quickly walk through what's shown here. Verse 16, notice what he says there. We no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh. What he's getting at there is in Christ, there's the casting off of old identities. Um, It's specifically referring to how we as believers see one another as believers. There's application to how we see the rest of the world. But part of what's being shown here is this. When we who are in Christ look at one another in Christ, we're no longer to have all of those kinds of earthly judgments, hatreds, racisms, insanities of we're in a different tax bracket so we can't hang out together kind of stuff that goes on in the world. White, black, or otherwise, all of that gets thrown out and we see one another according to the eyes of God. We see one another as fellow citizens in the kingdom of God. There is the looking past the physical to the eternal, to the spiritual, to the eternal. And then, of course, that has application to how we look at everyone around us. When we look at one another, we are to see one another with the eyes of God. C.S. Lewis once said, you have never looked on a mere mortal in your entire life. You are either looking at someone in Christ who is going to be glorified in such a way that if you were to see their future glory right now, it would be so wonderful, you'd be tempted to worship them. Or you're looking at someone who is headed to hell and who has an eternal devilishness that they are becoming that would terrify us to death if we were to see it right now. If souls are eternal, then everything is different. Black, white, or otherwise makes no difference. Who you truly are is who you are in relation to Christ. Well, that statement naturally then leads into verse 17. So look what he says in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
If you have truly been born again, you've turned to Christ, you are not who you used to be. A supernatural work has been done inside of you and supernatural work by the spirit of God is happening on a regular basis in you. You've been formed into something new and God's continuing that work on a regular basis. You're still human, but you're a new kind of human. God is forming us into new kinds of sons and daughters. See, friends, in the coming ages, God is going to remake things. There's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. For us who are in Christ, that newness that is to come, that work has begun inside of us. See, when God grabs a hold of us and transformation happens, and God says that it will and it must And we're really not doing anybody any favors when we pretend to be holier than what we actually are. We're not doing anybody any favors whenever, you know, we we look back on who we used to be and some of the places God has brought us and we we try to like hide some of our former sin and such. Listen, who we used to be, change and transformation that God has brought in our personal lives, this is indicative. What God is doing is showing the power of the gospel. The transformation that happens from who I used to be of the the irritable, grumpy, harsh boy, transformation that has happened, still got a whole lot more I want to go and things like this. But whatever that distance is, is evidence of the newness of being a new creation in him. God is forming us, making us into something new. And what God is doing is he's giving the world and giving one another a bit of an appetizer of what is to come. This is one of the places that um, in my role, I've got a little bit of an advantage because as I have lots and lots of conversations with folks, sometimes people are willing to share more with me than maybe what they do with everybody else. And a lot of times I get to hear the backstories of maybe secret sins and things that have gone on in the past that sometimes we don't tell everybody. And I get to see like, this is what somebody was. And then this is what God has made them now. That is a lot of distance. We should be more transparent and humble about those kinds of things because we're showing the glory of God. We're showing the transformation. He's making us new creations. Well, then look at verse 18 then. Now, all these things are from God, all these miracles that he's just talking about, who reconciled us to himself. Remember that the word reconciled means when two parties who are enemies or at war, when they come to peace, when they come to relationship, they're brought together again. So all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So so just kind of look at that first part there. This is still speaking of the believer. So here's what God has done in us. If you notice 16, 17, and the first part of 18 are all addressing the believer. And here's what God has done in us who are trusting Christ. He reconciled us to himself. He's done it through Christ. We've been brought to him. We've been brought to bow the knee. We've been made right with God in conversion. And then now notice the last part of the verse. And this is where it starts to transition then from what God has done in us to then the instruction to go do something. So the last part of verse 18, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation is the work of serving the kingdom of heaven 
where we help others be reconciled to God. We've been reconciled to God. The ministry we're given is go help others be reconciled to God. It really is crucial that we see this. It really is crucial that we see the need. This is one of the places that the Bible has one of the greatest places of contradiction with the popular belief of the culture around us. The culture around us constantly preaching, everybody's good, nobody needs anything, and the Bible constantly heralding the message, you must be reconciled. Jesus didn't send us out to do something that nobody needs. Jesus didn't send us out to go feed hungry people. Excuse me, let me restate that. Jesus did not send us out to feed people who are full and have an abundance, okay? He sent us out to meet need. He sent us out with a ministry of reconciliation because souls need reconciliation with him. So this is what he's called us to. We who trust Christ, we've been given a ministry of trying to help others come to be made right with God. How do we do that? Well, this is Matthew 28. This is go and make disciples. But how do we go about it? Well, you know, if you're studying the Bible and in Christ, you know the answer to this, but hang in there. He's gonna get very specific here in just a moment. Look at verse 19. So after saying ministry of reconciliation, now he defines it, okay? So namely, So what he's doing here is saying, here's the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So Christ's work of the cross has purchased the redemption, purchased the forgiveness of sins, made possible, accomplished what was necessary for reconciliation to take place. He has done this. And then he answers the question of the how, how do we go about doing the ministry of reconciliation? He has given us the word of reconciliation. Now, when he says the word of reconciliation, he's not just referring to like one individual English word. This is meaning a message. He's given us the message of reconciliation So what is it? What's the message of reconciliation? This is yet another way that the New Testament refers to the gospel, defines the gospel. The word gospel is the word that God uses to explain that basic message of Christ. The good news, that's what the word literally means, the good news of what God has accomplished in Christ to make a way for you to be made right with God and have eternal life. The word gospel um, is the Greek word. Now we don't say this so we can all try to feel smart and smug and things, but you'll hear this word. It's, it's the Greek word evangel. Whenever you hear that English word evangel, like like evangelism, what that means is gospelism, giving the gospel, telling the gospel. So a quick little way, a lot of times I teach some of the, the kids and such to remember what the gospel is and some of the various components is just with a brief sentence that if they can remember this, you can do something like memorize John 3.16 and you've remembered the gospel in 10 seconds. But here's a little sentence kind of summing it up. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the son of God, died for sins, rose from the dead so that we can be saved by faith. That's that's kind of the 10 second version. Is there more? Of course, but that kind of gives us the gist that is there. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why does it matter? 
So you can be saved. Why would I need that? Because I am in need. And then how do I get it? By faith in Christ. The, the word of reconciliation, the message of reconciliation that we bring to the world is you can be reconciled to God and you must be. This is what Jesus came to preach and this is the message that Jesus gives to us. We have a message that we are to speak and God's method is the message. The method that God is using to do this is using his people to speak his message. The kingdom of God comes by the word of God. Well, then look at verse 20. Look at that first part there. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is a, is a representative of a, of a nation or a kingdom. They're the ones who have interactions with other nations and such. So let me just pick one. Uh, John Quincy Adams was an ambassador to Russia before he ever became president. His job was to interact with the leaders and he wasn't allowed to say whatever he wanted to say, wasn't allowed to do whatever he wanted. He had, he had his instructions. He was in communication with his authorities back in the States. That, by the way, was in the days before the internet and his letters had to cross an ocean first, but he was in communication with his authorities back in the States. They told him the official policies, the official message. He was to interact in a faithful way representing the nation. You and I, as believers, have been made ambassadors for Christ, ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. We represent the kingdom of God to the world. We represent Christ. We represent the gospel. There's a way in which we who are part of the church family here, we represent this church, but that's not nearly as important as the fact that we represent Christ. But what it means is if you work in a room full of folks who are not following Christ, and they know that you do, and by the way, they should know that you do because it's on our lips often, but when you act, they will associate the gospel with you. They will associate the kingdom of God with you. If we live in a way that misrepresents the gospel, a way that misrepresents who Jesus is, then we will be misrepresenting him to the world. People will come to wrong conclusions about what Christianity is by misrepresentations of it. But if we live consistent, beautiful, beautiful lives of character that imitate Christ, loving those around us, constantly living to serve those around us, be a blessing to the world around us, winsomely humble. We imitate Christ well, then we will be picturing Christ rightly. But we represent it. So listen friends, Jesus was winsome. Jesus was loving, gracious, patient, caring, one of the greatest descriptions that I think that the New Testament shows us of like how to understand who, who Jesus, you know, he still is, but his character whenever he was living on this world is children love to be around Jesus. I just think that's a really helpful description of his character. What was it like to be around Jesus? Children wanted to be near Jesus. If when you hear the word godly, so here's some of the ways that Satan is always at work to try to misrepresent Christ. When you hear the word holy, does your mind think of like cold, grumpy guy? <laughs> because if you do, right, 
Satan has effectively given a wrong definition of what godliness is, okay? Grumpy, irritable, mean guy, that's not godliness. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus, loving, caring, winsome, children want to be around him. We are to imitate his character. We are to represent him rightly. We are to speak his gospel and we are to make him look good. Now listen very carefully. He is good. We're not campaign managers. We're not spin doctors for yet another crooked politician who's trying to make a horrid man look good to the media. It's not what we're doing. Jesus is wonderful. What we're trying to do is be faithful to show his glory to the world. And doing that involves both our lifestyle and the message of the gospel that we speak. We cannot separate them. We cannot separate the one from the other. Living a life that is consistent with the gospel and speaking the message of the gospel. Both of these, if we as parents, if, if, if we were to live as hypocrites, then we might speak the gospel we might explain the gospel to our kids and those kinds of things, but if we live hypocritically, what kind of conclusion will our kids come to about the gospel? They will think of it as rotten and worthless, but it's not. It's beautiful. It's the answer. It's the way to eternal life. But we can wrongly misrepresent it. It'd be like if John Quincy Adams, whenever he was representing America, if he were to have spoken the right message, but what if he had womanized and lived in drunkenness? He would misrepresent what's there. He did not do that. But the beauty of our lives is to, here's biblical language, adorn the gospel. It's to show the beauty of the gospel. Live lives that are consistent with the gospel. An illustration we've used of the past is to take a, a, a beautiful and very valuable diamond ring and then to put it on a, a, a pig's hoof and let it run around in the mud, that kind of thing. Well, the ring is still valuable, it's still costly, but it's been covered up by some muck and it'd be hard to show someone that it's beautiful in that way. We have a gospel that is highly valuable, but we can, by our lifestyle, cover up its beauty if we live in a way that is inconsistent with it. We are to show the beauty of the gospel. So we are to speak it. We are to live it. Everything about our lives is to, is to make it known. And so that also means we can't do things like say, I'm going to just live consistent with the gospel, but I'm never going to say anything. I'm never going to share the gospel. No, it has to be the both of them together. We are ambassadors for Christ. And then notice the next part of verse 20 there. As though God were making an appeal through us. We see this truth all the time in the Bible. Like in the book of Acts, when the early church was telling their neighbors about Christ and they were doing the work of ministry, one of the things the book of Acts shows us is Jesus was at work. Wait a second, I thought the church was acting. How is it Jesus? That's part of the mystery of his sovereignty and his providence all the time. We're shown in the parables that Jesus told about. How does the kingdom of heaven come to earth in this age? It comes by the people of God explaining the word of God, and yet still somehow Jesus is the one sowing the seed on the earth. God is at work through his people. So when you explain the message of the gospel to someone, 
part of what this is showing is God is making his appeal to this soul and he's using you to do it, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about in the way we participate in the work of God. And then notice that last part there, verse 20. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is our tone. We are to plead. The text uses the word beg. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're not to speak the gospel coldly, kind of like Jonah. Jonah in the Bible is not given to us as the great example to follow, okay? We see that by the trouble that he went through along the way. Jonah went reluctantly to Nineveh, and part of what the book of Jonah shows is how amazing it is that God still accomplished his work, even though Jonah acted like he did, coldly in the end going through. That's not our tone. We're not to have a disgusted, condemning, judgy kind of tone. Listen, the humble Christian We are to remember, I deserve hell every bit as much as any man on death row. God saved me by grace, not because I deserve it, not because of any work. He saved me by grace. And with that tone, we plead, we adjure, we earnestly plead, we we seek to win hearts, we persuade, we seek to show the world that Christ is the treasure. Friend, this morning, if you're not yet following Christ, we as a church, the big pleading that we have with you, be reconciled to God. You must have this. This is Jesus's message to you. I I know you may be tempted like we all once did to think of ourselves as, as a good person and I'm sure in the end we'll be okay with God. But look what God is saying in this passage. The message that he gives is you're not right with him until you come to Christ. Until there is a turning, there is a bowing of the knee to trust in Christ. Come be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors with a ministry and a word. Now let's talk some practical application here as we come to the end here. Jesus shows us that part of what it means to be a follower of Christ is to help others become followers of Christ. If you remember whenever Jesus was speaking that basic message of discipleship, what he said is, come follow me. And then what's the rest of what he said there? Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Mark Dever says it like this. He says, if you say that you're a follower of Christ, but you're not helping anybody else become a follower of Christ, what do you mean when you say that you're a follower of Christ? Part of what he's getting at there is Jesus associated this work of helping one another as believers and helping those not follow Christ in order to follow him. He associates it as part of the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. He said, as the father sent me, so I send you. Jesus came with the ministry of reconciliation to redeem us. And he sends us out with the ministry of reconciliation. Follow me. If we, if we just ask the question, you know, what does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a follower of Christ. What's the most basic definition of that? It means, means to respond to Jesus's call, come follow me. When he gives that definition and says, and be fishers of men, he's connecting it with the definition. 
What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a follower who helps others follow Christ. Jesus left comfort in order to come to us. We are to leave comfort in order to go to others. He modeled what we are to imitate, which means a lot of things. It means that there is to be an intentionality in our lives. It means that we are to intentionally spend time and have this as one of the goals that we have as we spend time with folks. It means we should avoid that kind of religion that we sometimes call rabbit hole Christianity, which is it's possible if you've been a Christian for a long time and the church family means something to you, that's a great thing, but it's possible for us to drift into a very comfortable kind of lifestyle where the only people we spend time with are other Christians where like if we're at work or out in the world, that sort of thing, we kind of keep our head down and, and tucked in so that we don't interact with anybody and we're only around believers. Listen, Jesus spent so much time having meals with disciples, or excuse me, having meals with lost people, with those who were not yet following Christ, prostitutes, drunkards, tax collectors. He spent so much time having meals with them. The Pharisees called him a drunkard and a glutton. He spent so much time interacting with them that the religious self-righteous folks accused him in a derogatory way of being a friend of sinners and of tax collectors. He spent so much time interacting with those who were not yet followers and many of them living in open rebellion to God, but him seeking to minister, spent so much time with them that self-righteous religious people judged him. And here we are 2,000 years later and the same thing keeps happening. Let them judge. You honor God. Imitate Christ. We are to be intentional in this. We all have different gifts in different kinds of areas. So some folks have what the, the New Testament kind of refers to as a gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to engage in it. In the same way that some folks, uh, some believers have the gift of uh, encouragement or the gift of hospitality, which means they're better at it than uh, the rest at it. This is, this is a talent that God gave them and they should uh, lean into it and spend more time in it. But all of us are called to encourage and be hospitable at different times. We're all called to engage in this gospel ministry, though some have a, a knack and a talent given from God. Sometimes we can get jealous of those who just have such an ease and it's just so natural for them to go and do this kind of thing. But we are to figure out per our gifts, how can my life make maximum impact for the kingdom of God? There are tons and tons of ways to be useful to the work of the kingdom, the work of gospel ministry. Sometimes when we think of gospel ministry, we can only think of like the one kind, the person who's really gifted at conversation and you know, they're in the grocery store line and in three minutes they get somebody to open up all of their deepest secrets and they can winsomely share the gospel, okay? There are people that have that kind of knack. That's not most of us. Most of us walk away from some gospel conversations going, really wish that would have gone better. And then for three days we're going, I wish I would have said that and then this. And, but per our gifts, we are to find a way to make maximum impact with our lives. There are Christians who are scared to death to teach the Bible to adults, but they love teaching children. 
We've got this whole army in the church family here who goes back and teaches scripture to our little ones back there and they act like goofballs to the glory of God. And we thank you for that. Thank you for teaching our little ones. You're helping our little ones come to love Christ. Every single week, members of this church are involved in teaching the word of God in the local schools here to more than 180 students every single week. If that doesn't fire you up, we're missing something here. This is an amazing opportunity. There are others who are good at hospitality. And so what they oftentimes do will just have folks over for a meal, do it with excellence And in the course of being together, they'll pray together and engage in some helpful spiritual conversation. By the way, hospitality is one of the forgotten gems of the Bible. Hospitality is one of the forgotten ministries that really is one of the most effective ways both to do the work we'll talk about next week of building up believers, but also that of engaging with those not following Christ. And in fact, In this culture right here, as this culture becomes less and less inclined to come to a church service, hospitality may very well end up being the the most effective evangelistic tool that the church has. Just the, the simple thing of sharing a meal together and engaging in conversation. For other Christians, fostering and adoption is the big way they serve God in like tons of ways. And this being one of them, lifelong evangelism. And speaking of that, the command of the Great Commission, friends, it was meant by God to start in our homes. It doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to do it anywhere else. But we are to see that the greatest responsibility that we have with the gospel is to those who are in our very households. Don't don't ever think like that if your primary way that you are engaging in gospel work is with your own children, that somehow that's like cheating and God's like, that doesn't count. No, that's where it counts the most. This is the place of greatest responsibility. And friends, you know, we've stated this before, but the backwards digression that we see in, in this culture that's happening in Christianity, it's not globally. Globally, the gospel continues to advance. The kingdom of heaven continues to come. But in this one place, there is a backwards digression that we see. If believers in America had been faithful to do the Great Commission in only one place, nowhere else, one place, the home, Christianity would continue to be multiplying and expanding. We are to obey the great commission everywhere, but there is a level of responsibility we have inside of our own homes. There are others who will sometimes come to believers who are engaging in some gospel ministries and say, you know, let me help you in in these kinds of ways. I'll pass out papers. I'll set up tables and set up chairs and things. I'll try to help what you do better. There are some who come to others and say, I'll babysit your kids for two hours while you go to this food bank that you've been sharing the gospel in. Those who work to put sermons on podcasts, ladies who get together to plan the women's conference, all of these kinds of things is partnering in the work of the gospel along those kinds of lines. Uh, um, One of the things that John the Apostle mentions in the New Testament is that when we give to missionaries, we're becoming a partner in their work that's there. And none of those kinds of things is to ever, we're never to see it as an excuse that I won't take part in gospel conversation myself. We're never to say that that's the replacement 
because there's a call to this, but we are to ask the question, how can I make my life make maximum impact for the kingdom of God? There are some things that every single one of us can do regardless of gifts. Let me just mention just a few of them here. We need to pray. And when we say that, we don't just mean like, oh yeah, that one's obvious. No, we need to pray. We pray, stuff happens. That's the principle that is there. What if we were to take some of our times where we pray over our meals as a family and dads, if you took maybe just a, a little bit of extra time to do some things like uh, uh, pray that our family would be effective, pray for the hikis, that God would provide for them and they'd be useful and effective, uh, pray for the missionaries in this place. What if we picked some certain places in the world that badly need the gospel? Picked an unreached people group and prayed for the work of the gospel among them. By the way, you know, Iran in the news a great deal right now. Some of the reports coming out in these current times is there have been more Iranians turned to Christ in the last 10 years than in the previous thousand. The gospel will not be stopped. The gospel will do what Jesus said it would do. It would permeate the entirety of the earth. It would touch every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. In the New Testament, Paul often asked the churches to pray for him. One of the times whenever he was communicating and asking for those prayers, he asked them to pray for him to have the opportunities for the gospel, wisdom in what to say, and then boldness to say it. If you think about it, that kind of formula is exactly what we need. What if we began to add this into what we're already praying for? To pray that God would give us opportunities, those, those moments where we're able to explain the gospel and then in the moment we need to be able to think of something to say and then the courage to say it. When we pray for opportunities, God brings them. Secondly, you know, especially in this land of abundance, we can give to gospel work. It's just a fact of life, gospel work. Those who are going to do missions around the world, it takes money to do that. They got to raise their families and pay bills. And we want them to be able to buy Christmas presents for their kids and such. It takes money to do this. And then lastly, gospel conversations. Here, here's the way that Romans 10 explains it to us. No one will turn to trust in Christ unless they learn that they need to. No one will hear that they need to unless someone tells them. And no one will tell unless we're sent out by seeing these truths from scripture and understanding how to do it. Practically speaking, having conversations is one of the ways we teach. That goes for how we speak the truth and love to one another as well, to help one another grow in Christ. We are engaging in a form of teaching it is a form of preaching when we get together for pizza on a Friday night and help encourage one another. And similarly, as we are explaining the message of the gospel in conversation, there's a way in which we're taking part in this. Statistics show that the number one way that people turn to Christ, number, number one way is by parents explaining the gospel to their children. It always has been the number one way. I think it always will be. But statistics show that the second greatest way that someone turns to Christ is when a close friend or family member invites them to church or shares the gospel with them, influencing them in some way. What, what, what this is showing is the closer the relationship, the more the influence. 
you have people in your circle of influence. We have people in contact. We have some folks in our lives willing to hear what we have to say. They need the gospel. Christ calls us to tell them. When two guys who love hunting meet each other for the first time, give it 10 minutes, they're talking about hunting. Why is this? We have a tendency to gravitate towards those subjects that we love. We are to have the message of Christ on our lips because this is what we love, because this is where we're thinking of. You know, as a church, we, we want to grow. We, we, we want to reach the entirety of the world, want everyone to bow to Christ. But, but do you know what the number one way that churches grow is? The number one way that churches grow is by transfer growth. Meaning it's when believers who are already following Christ get tired of a church and then they go to another church that maybe has like a sexier youth group or a funnier preacher, that kind of thing. Now, listen to what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, okay? There is a time to leave a church. Some of you may have come from some other congregations. Don't be sitting there thinking, man, pastor's really telling me to go back. You know, that's not what it is. There's a time to leave. We understand this. But the time not to leave is when like the youth group is, you know, more exciting or the preacher over there is funnier and I'm dating the church and tired of this one and I want something new. That's an unbiblical reason to leave a church and to go to a new one. So I want to communicate this. We want to grow as a church. We want to reach more. But understand this. We're not trying to deplete good churches of folks. We are seeking to reach those who are not following Christ. Now, by all means... You have a, a Christian friend who's in an unhealthy situation, by all means, minister in the way that you know is right. That's not trying to say, leave somebody in a cult or in a, or in a place that's got great error. That's not what this is. But our great goal is to seek to reach those who are not following Christ. When we first set out to plant the church here, there were quite a few folks who looked at us kind of quizzically when they heard that and they go, but there ain't any Baptist in Ferdinand. <laughs> And kind of our response was, we're not trying to reach people who are existing Baptists as though you're born that way. We're seeking to reach people who are not following Christ. This is the ministry of reconciliation. We're seeking to reach out to those who are not following Christ. And this is harder. It's a harder thing than just trying to attract people who are already Christians. But this is the ministry. This is the kingdom work. And so let's give ourselves to this work. And if you've not yet come to Christ, if you've not yet turned to Christ in this way that you know the Bible is calling you to, we plead with you, be reconciled to God. Turn your life to bow the knee. Trust Christ, not yourself. Trust him. If you want somebody to talk to you about that, find me before you leave. But look to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, um, Lord, I pray that you'll take the truths and you will apply them to our hearts. Every way that I've said something that wasn't clear or unhelpful, cause it to be forgotten. But Lord, I pray that the truths will be made evident, O oh God. Bless us to be a church family that's useful, uh, Lord, in this work. Uh, Father, I, I pray that we will be faithful in our individual lives to help others follow Christ. I pray that as a church family together, Lord, you'll give us opportunities and we pray for big opportunities. 
God, we're so thankful that in the past you've given us things like the Good News uh, Club and the com- Women's Conference and some of these various ways that you open up doors and sometimes really big doors. We pray that'll continue, oh God. Father, we pray that we'll be faithful in them. Make us to be useful to make the gospel known. And we pray, oh God, bring a great harvest from it. Please bless us as we leave here, God, that we'll go out this very week and honor you in it. Lord, we ask all these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled Ambassadors of Christ. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.